Isn't that awful? You come to somebody else's house and then move their furniture? Isn't that terrible? <laughs> Who is this guy? Well, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this day and this time. We can open up your word. And we pray that the spirit of Jesus would be with us and help us hear the gospel, the power of God, apply it to our lives, open our hearts and our minds. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name's Rob Sturdy. I'm the Anglican chaplain down at the Citadel. I'll be with you in and out for a couple weeks, so uh, I look forward to, to seeing you from time to time. I know a lot of you, and, and it's nice, nice, nice to see you. Lara Broditsky, she's a cognitive scientist, uh, professor of language cognition at the University of California in San Diego, and she has an experiment that she likes to conduct different lecture halls and audiences around the world, and what she asks people to do, and, and I'm not going to make you do it because I hate when speakers say, close your eyes and, and do this thing. That's a great way to get me to leave early. But, so I'm not going to make you do it, but I will tell you what she does. She says, close your eyes, focus, and point north. And what, what she has discovered is that arms shoot in as many directions as there are people. And that is replicated without fail all over the world except for one community. Broditsky discovered in this one community in the western shores of Australia's Cape York, children as young as five can point to true north with absolute precision at all times. Now, what's the reason for that? Well, the reason is they're trained by the language that they use. When you and I give directions, we are most likely going to give directions in spatial terms. So we're going to head up 17. Yeah. Or we're going to say that coffee is, is over there. My house is to the right of the greenhouse, but when this aboriginal community gives directions, they give them according to the four points of the compass, even when talking about household items. I left you supper south of the coffee maker, <laughs> next to the sink, parked my car to the northeast of the school. Jenny's right over there. She's just five steps west of Tom. Broditsky concluded that because their language depends on knowing such things as what true north is, they are always aware of the sun's position relative to themselves. So they are always oriented. Now, wherever there are audiences with no point of orientation, nor a sense of the importance of being oriented, there will always be arms pointing in myriad directions whenever somebody asks which way is north. But these days, it's not only the points of a compass that would reveal a lack of general orientation, as well as a sense of importance of being oriented, but it's some of the most deeply significant aspects of the human experience. Close your eyes. Imagine and focus. What is human life? Can you point to it? What's the meaning of it? Could you tell me, is there a God? If so, can God be known? What does it mean to be good? What does it mean 
to be evil? How can I know the difference? If I were to ask questions here this morning, I suspect we would have the equivalent of a hundred arms pointing in a hundred different directions. There would be as many opinions as there are people. That doesn't mean, as a lot of modern people assume it means, that these questions have answers that are matters of opinion. What it means is that you and I lack a point of orientation with which to navigate these questions. Unlike the Aborigines who use the sun to tell them which way Aunt Jenny's house is, many of us, if we're honest, have nothing at the center of our lives to help us navigate life's greatest and most important questions. But what if we did have something at the center? That's actually what I want to talk with you about this morning. From John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, they're kind enough to actually print the reading out in your bulletin, so you can follow along if you like. And as we walk through this passage, some of the things that I want us to think about, some of the questions that we can ask from this passage and actually get answers to is, what is at the center? What is the point of orientation? That's question number one. Here's question number two. If there is a center, if there is a point of orientation, can I know it well enough? deeply enough for it to have a significant impact on my life. Here's the last question. What can we learn from this center, if there is such a thing? Those questions we'll be asking of this passage. The reading today is written by a man named John. Says he was a friend of Jesus. Said he walked about the earth with him. Says he was a follower of him. And if we were to ask John, what's at the center? John is unapologetically going to say, God's at the center. But that's not all he's going to say. There's a mysterious person alongside of God. John calls him the Word. But he's going to call him something else by the end of the passage. This is what John had to say about him. In the beginning was the one, he's called the Word. The Word was with God, was truly God. From the very beginning, the Word was with God. With this Word, God created all things. Nothing was made without the Word. Everything that was created received its life from Him, and His life gave light to everyone. This person that John's talking about, mysterious person called the Word, he is at the beginning of everything. That's verse 1. It's not just that he's at the beginning of everything. It's not just that he's alongside of God at the beginning of everything. But John tells us he is God as well. He's truly God. Verse 1. With God he created everything. Verse 3. Everything that received life and light received it directly from him. And I take life here to mean more than you got blood pumping through your veins. I'm talking about the kind of life that somebody who has walked and eaten and drank and swum and surfed for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and all of a sudden something happens and they say, finally, I feel alive. That's the life he's talking about. Life and light. What is John saying about this mysterious person? He calls the word. What he's saying is, this person is at the center of everything. Now, if we were to close our eyes and ask everybody in the room to focus 
and point to the true north of their life? 69% of the people in the room would say their family. And I think that's good. Family's a wonderful thing. It's a powerful thing. 39% would point to their careers. Careers can be very fulfilling. 23% would point to money, which I just think feels kind of dirty. Now, those are the top three points of orientation for modern Americans, says a recent study conducted by the Pew Research Center, which attempted to answer the question as to where and how modern Americans find meaning in their life. Now, what that means is in such a climate like we're living in right now, people like John are in the extreme minority. Because what John says is at the center, nobody else would agree with him. Now, you might be surprised by that survey, but it it really doesn't surprise me because I know the centrality of the modern American family. I know the deep-seated identity and meaning that can be built on a career. And I know the existential sense of security and worth that comes from money. I know all these things in my life, and I've come to know them in the lives of others. But I also know these things can be displaced from the center from time to time. Really hard, isn't it, for a teenager to say family's the center when their parents are being divorced? Really hard for someone to say the career is the center when it's stalled out or they've lost it. And money giveth existential security and money taketh it away. These things can be easily displaced. What happens when, when those centers get displaced? The vast majority of Americans turn to God in prayer. The vast majority of Americans turn to God in prayer. Even 8% of atheists will pray to someone in a time of crisis. They sure will. What does that mean? Well, well, John has something to say about this as well. He says that there's a darkness. But he also says the light keeps shining in that darkness. What's that mean? Well, it means you and I can, can, can darken the center with family or career or money, but that the true center still finds a way to shine in that darkness, still finds a way to dispel it. He goes further, he says the darkness has never put it out. John has something to say to Elizabeth King. She's from Chicago. She's a writer, and she recently had an article. I love the title. It's called, I'm an Atheist, So Why Can't I Shake God? Because the light shines and the darkness has not put it out. She has some interesting things to say. You know, she says, she's, I've been an atheist for a decade. This idea that there's a God, it still pesters me. It still troubles me. She often finds herself accidentally in prayer in times of hardship and trouble. Even though I know nobody's up there, she says, I I can't help but ask. And what she says is this nagging sense of belief in God. She, She came to the conclusion that she stuck with it because recent research in developmental psychology argues that religious belief is hardwired into the human brain through evolution. And so she, she, 
comes to a strange conclusion. She says, it's hardwired in the brain. That's why it's still with me. But that's also how I know it's not real. Now, for those of you that are near college, I want you to know that the first semester in college, there's going to be a professor who's going to say something very similar to you. It's going to make total sense. You're going to say, religion is hardwired into the brain, ergo there's no God. But I want to help you see the severe flaw in that logic. You know what else is hardwired into your brain? The need for food. Ergo, there's no food. <laughs> you know what else is hardwired into your brain? The need to sleep, the need to drink water, the need to breathe. Ergo, you don't need sleep, water, or air. Let's talk about something more intangible. Deep-seated, biologically driven needs for companionship, friendship, love, physical intimacy, sex. Ergo, you don't need companionship, friendship, physical intimacy. You wouldn't say that about anything else hardwired into your brain, would you? Why say it about this? Did you ever think that the center who made all things hardwired it into your brain, that he's the center? The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness cannot put it out because it's in you. Yeah. It's all fine and good, isn't it, to say that that this is the center of, of all things, that God is the center of all things. But how, how do I know who he is? How do I know what he thinks like? How do I know what he loves? How do I know what he thinks about me? Because there are <clears throat> as many different opinions about God, aren't there, as there are people. How do I know the center? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I grew up uh, reading. The librarian hated this because we had to turn in uh, reading sheets. <clears throat> and I would always tell her you know, things like, I read Spider-Man number 38 this week. I love Marvel comics. <clears throat> That's what taught me to read. And so you can imagine how excited I am that we've just finished 10 years worth of Marvel films. So excited. <laughs> And, uh, and I've watched some of them with the kids, the ones I thought were, were age appropriate, you know. And if you've watched these films, then you know there's, there's a really neat cameo in every film. And it always gets me excited. And I, I was so excited when the children were next to me and we were watching it. There's a little old man that's going to wander into the screen at some point during that film. He's got a mustache. And his name is Stan Lee. And Stan Lee, when he wandered into the, into, the, into the shot, and I was next to the kids, I said, look at this guy. Who's that goofy old man? That's what they said. Look at that guy. He created all of this. He created every character, every storyline. And the reason he's in these films is he wrote himself into the plot. There he is, right there. How do you know the center? Can, can the center be known? Well, what John tells us is the center can be known. How? Because the person that made everything, everybody, every character in the room, wrote himself into the story. It's a cameo. 
33 years. But he wrote himself into the story. The true light that shines on everyone, this is verse 9, was coming into the world for his role, for his moment of screen time. It says in verse 14 that the Word, this mysterious person, became a human being and lived with us. And John tells us that he's a Jew born into a ethnic minority, despised people, the race of fallen kings, and his name is Jesus. And he is the author of everything. Can you know him? Absolutely. Absolutely. How does he treat his friends? The center of all things. I can tell you because he had friends. How does he handle the death of a loved one? I can tell you because he had loved ones. And he went to their funerals. I can tell you a lot more about him in just a minute. But before we get too far into that, I have this last question. If we can know him, and he can be known, what do we learn from him? And we learn at least two things. So much more, but at least two things. We learn something about ourselves, and we learn something about him. Here's the thing we learn about ourselves, and this is a pretty uncomfortable truth, is that if, if the center of all things put on skin and walked into this room, we probably wouldn't like him very much. That's the uncomfortable thing that we learn. I don't know if you've ever heard of the uh, really great American theologian, Chris Christopherson. <laughs> he was a highwayman, sang with Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings. He's got a song, Jesus Was a Capricorn. I don't know if you ever heard it. I'll read it to you. Jesus was a Capricorn. He ate organic food. Which is not a huge leap, because they, they didn't have anything but organic food back then. <laughs> he believed in love and peace and never wore no shoes. So we also know he's from Alabama. <laughs> like me, don't want to offend any of the brethren. Long hair, beard, and sandals, and a funky bunch of friends. But, but here's the part that always gets me in this song. Reckon we'd just nail him up if he came down again. It's hard to hear, isn't it? What does John say? The center of everything. The person who wrote your story took on flesh and said we didn't even recognize him. And then John says his own people wouldn't even receive him. It gets worse, doesn't it? Because, you know, his own band of brothers, his own buddies left him when he needed them most. It's just because they didn't like him very much. When push came to shove, they just didn't like him very much. Because when, when the centers of our life are displaced, aren't we, aren't we often just using Jesus to get back what we lost? Put it back where we like it? Tell him he can go back on vacation? 
Yeah. Reckon we'd just nail him up if he came down again. That's what we learn about us. Now, you're more than that, right? You're more wonderful than that. And you're more beautiful than that. But you are that. That's what we learn about ourselves. What do we learn about him? Well, at the end of this reading, uh, John says something really incredible. He, He says in 17, the law was given by Moses. Do you know what the law is? All the rules. All the rules that tell you, I mean, they're amazing. They tell you what you should do. They have the miraculous power to remind you that you didn't do it all at the same time. The law came to tell you what you did wrong. And wouldn't the center of all things have every right to do that if he walked into the room? He would have every right. But John says, when the center put on skin and became a human being and lived here with us, he didn't come with that pointing finger. Says that he came with undeserved kindness and truth. And so here's the most important thing you can learn about the Word became flesh. And I want you to pay attention. If God came into the world, how would He treat a sinner? How would He treat somebody who fell short? How would He treat somebody who habitually puts other things at the center of their life and guards them so seriously that if the king of everything tried to insert himself, they'd turn on him and kill him. I know how he treats those people because we treated him like that. And what he said to the collective us as we did that to him was, forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. And for 2,000 years, he's extended that charity They don't even know what they're doing. And for 2,000 years, he's been saying, even still, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden of not even knowing what you're doing. I'll give you rest. So there is a center of all things. His name is Jesus, and he has unmerited kindness in overflowing abundance. Say just two things briefly for those of you who know the Lord, who follow Jesus. From time to time, he gets displaced, doesn't he? From the center of our lives. The quicker path to fixing that is not to deny it, but just to admit it. And to remember in the fleeting times he is at the center. How does he get there? Isn't it by remembering he's always willing to forgive, always willing to bear the burden, always willing to be called upon, which is another way of saying he's good? Paul, he said the gospel, and that means good news. Paul said the good news of Jesus is the power of God. And it's simply the gospel, the power of God, that will ultimately displace all these imposters. And one day the sinner will be there. And at the end of all things, when we see him face to face, we'll know what we really had here. It's coming. 
So the exhortation to you is be honest and remember the gospel. For those of you who are here who are exploring Jesus, and there's always people exploring Jesus, I'll, I'll just say this. I know there are a million different opinions about who God is. I know that. But I do want you to understand where what I'm saying is distinct, yeah? All religions are not the same, and we can be friends with people who are different than us. But what makes this distinct? This is the only one that says the center of all things became one of you. Which is another way of saying this is the only one that says you can know him. And this is the only one that when he showed up, he didn't show up with a sledgehammer. But he showed up with open arms on a cross. It's the only one. If it's true, isn't it worth your time and your energy to figure it out? I'd love to help you. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the goodness of Jesus and the power of God. Pray that we would understand glimpses of the goodness we have in knowing Jesus. And that in seeing his goodness, we would willingly, eagerly allow him more and more into the center of our life. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.